picture up here makes me smile. God must have a sense of humor, don't you think? He made monkeys after all. Thirty years ago, I was studying at a university to the north of here. I was studying engineering, one of the sciences. And I had never heard anything but throughout my public education career, which by then had consisted of, what, 13, 14 years, I had never been allowed to hear anything but from goo to you by way of the zoo. And uh, I started taking Bible studies with a Seventh-day Adventist preacher. And he insisted that that whole idea was wrong that in fact there was a creator and he had made us by the word of his mouth. And I, I listened to that and I thought about that and then I began looking at some of the evidences upon which to believe that. And I was surprised, I was maybe even startled a little bit and uh, encouraged to find out there were hooks to hang my faith upon in a creator God. And since that time, I've discovered more and more hooks to hang my faith upon. It is a good day to believe in the creator God. I'd like to share with you today a number of reasons why we can believe in Genesis 1 verse 1, more now than at any other time in history, that in fact from goo to you by way of the zoo is not the way it happened. The first words of Scripture, you're familiar with them. In the beginning, God, say with me, created the heavens and the earth. There's a lot in that verse. In the, in the original Hebrew, it consists of just seven words, and they're full of majesty and power. God made the heavens and the earth. How did he do it? The Bible says he, he spoke it. His word must have nuclear power. Actually, better than nuclear power because nuclear power just destroys things mostly, doesn't it? God Creates with his word. Does this word right here have that kind of power? Powerful. By the way, which member of the Godhead actually spoke the world into existence? Jesus did. So, so really, the opening words of the Bible are about Jesus and by Jesus and for Jesus. Isn't that right? I mean, he, he made us for himself. He spoke these words. It was his power that did it. Jesus is here. Amen? I like that. In fact, there's a lot of love behind these powerful words, isn't, isn't there? There's a lot of love behind them. When, when God made the earth, he made it to be inhabited, the Bible says. He wanted us, didn't he? He was eager to have us. And then our, our teacher here for the children's story, she noted that he, 
climax the creation account with a day. He didn't make anything that day. He just made a day. A day for relationship. Amen? That was the whole purpose. We could walk with Him. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In 1968, Frank Borman came back from a trip around the moon. Apollo 8 astronaut. And he was asked an interesting question. He was asked if he had seen God. This was like seven months or so before the moon landing. He didn't land on the moon. He just... He just went around the moon, slingshot around, and came back. And he was asked, did you see God out there? Because while he was in outer space, a Soviet cosmonaut had returned from a similar mission. And when he was asked that question, he said, no. He quipped, I I didn't see God. I didn't see any angels either. So they asked Frank Borman. And you know what Frank Borman said? He said, no, I didn't see him, but I saw His evidences. You like that? I saw his evidences. Another astronaut walked on the moon. His name was James Irwin, 1971. He was so impressed by the splendor of the heavens and what he discovered there walking on the moon that the very next year he began a Christian ministry and the, and the subtitle for his Christian ministry is that God walked on the earth is a lot more important than man walked on the moon. And I like that. I heard that story, by the way, from Werner von Braun. How many have ever heard of Werner von Braun? Famous rocket scientist. Do smart Intelligent people believe in a creator God. Yeah. I, I, see, well, I'm up there in college 30 years ago, and, and all I ever knew was that smart, educated people with letters after their name believed in the goo-to-you theory. I didn't know that smart, educated people believed in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. I've got a picture here. Does anyone know who this is, by the way? Anybody? This is a tough question. But if I was to... Ah, hang on a second. I'm going to give you a hint. Oh, maybe not. I I forgot my visual aid. I did. But if I was to toss an apple up into the air and catch it, you might know who this guy is. Who is it? Isaac Newton. If you were to take a poll of scientists today and you were to ask them, who was the greatest scientist who ever lived, you'd probably get Isaac Newton more often than not. Brilliant guy. I've got a a short list of his accomplishments. He really didn't discover gravity, but he did define the laws of gravity. He he, uh, was a great mathematician and came up with the three laws of motion. How many here have ever studied calculus? Yeah, that's tough. You studied calculus because he invented calculus. Incredible. He was an astronomer. He actually built the first reflecting telescope. This guy was amazing. He wrote books on physics, books on optics, and he wrote most of all about Scripture. Did you know that? He loved the Word of God. And and what's fascinating to me is that 
possibly the most brilliant man in all of history, outside of Solomon, let's say, loved especially the prophecies. He wrote an entire book on Daniel. He was fascinated by the mathematical precision between prophecy and fulfillment. He especially, you can imagine being a mathematician, he loved Daniel's numbers. And many of his conclusions come very close to what we believe today as Seventh-day Adventists. By the way, as regards the creation science movement, we as a people have contributed greatly. Some of the biggest names, I, I never even knew about creation science until, you know, 30 years ago when I'm up there in college. But some of the greatest, most respected names are Seventh-day Adventists. Probably the founder of the modern movement is a Baptist named Henry Morris. But he himself says that he owes a great debt to a Canadian Seventh-day Adventist named George McCready Price who lived a little over 100 years ago. Yeah, George McCready Price got this evolutionary... um, hydro-engineer at the University of Minnesota to start thinking about creation science. There's other names. My point is, you don't have to check your brain at the church door. Amen. Isaac Newton. Let's turn in our Bibles to Romans 1. I'd like to take a look. You are familiar with this, but there are some striking phrases I would like to highlight. Romans 1 beginning with verse 18. Of course, Romans 1, Romans 1, and all of Romans, is, is the, maybe the fundamental foundational book in all the scriptures about the gospel. But first, Paul is going to say something else. He's going to talk about the creator God. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What do they do with the truth? They suppress it. They suppress it. In other words, they, they, they step on it, don't they? They don't want anyone else to hear about it. They, they put it in the background. They cover it over. They suppress it. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. In other words, do they know what they're doing? It's quite deliberate, isn't it? God has shown it to them. What is it? Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are, what? Clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. In other words, these people know Clearly, they've seen it, that there is a God and he's powerful. And they see it, why? Because there's proof right in front of their face. What is it? The things that are made. But they choose to suppress that truth in unrighteousness. That's why I didn't hear about the creator and, and, and scientific creationism until I'm 20 years old. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were dark, and professing to be wise, they became what? Letters after their name. They got letters. But the Bible says they're what? 
When you reject Genesis 1 verse 1, Scripture is telling me right here, telling you that you are a... Well, that's pretty harsh language, isn't it? Unless God says, I, I suppose his opinion matters most of all. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God, verse 23, into an image made like corruptible man and birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. My version says the lie. This isn't just any lie. This is the lie. Could the lie about the creator God, that is the evolutionary theory, be the ultimate lie of all? They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Is this subject important? If you reject Genesis 1 verse 1, all the rest of the Bible has a shadow of doubt weighing upon it. Are you with me? If you allow the inroads of skepticism to creep in on your understanding of of Genesis, why should you believe anything else God said? Does the devil want us to doubt his word? Did he not say to Eve, one of the first things he said, has God indeed said that? Did God really say that? You can't believe that. God, Satan wants you and I to doubt the word of God. And he's done a pretty good job starting right with the opening words of Scripture. What other things hang upon Genesis? Well, several. If you spiritualize away creation, origins, most often it happens people spiritualize away endings. They spiritualize away the second coming. After all, if God is not responsible for my being here right now, how can I trust him for where I'm headed? Second coming comes into doubt. How about salvation? If evolution is true, I am getting smarter. I am getting better. Am I not? I don't have a radical problem with my own uh, nature. Lostness? No, look at me. Salvation is not necessary for the evolutionist. And finally, of course, I've already alluded to this, the Sabbath. Pretty near and dear to us, isn't that right? The Sabbath is a memorial of creation. And it loses all of its, you know, foundational underpinnings if you do not believe in the Creator. Those are pretty big things, aren't they? Belief in the Word of God, Second Coming, Salvation, Sabbath. Pretty big. This issue is is crucial. It's crucial to have a conviction. What I would like to share with you today are some reasons that that you can hopefully remember. You get out your handout. It's found in your bulletin. Seven things. And uh, you've got a little work to do to fill some of these out, all right? And hopefully this will help you. I've got an acronym going here. That ought to help. I gave you the first letter. And if you look down through the first letters, you see that it says what? Fools me. (laughs) Yeah. Professing to be wise, they became fools. All right, fools me, seven things. I can't help myself. 
My wife said, don't do this. I've only got seven things, but I had to neglect some things. So, so here is some stuff I'm neglecting, but I'm putting them in here, but they're really not in here, okay? This isn't part of the sermon. This is no extra charge. Five things that aren't in here. Many infallible proofs left out. Number one, design demands a designer. Isn't that right? I'm looking out over the Walmart parking lot the other day. I'm eating my lunch. I'm thinking about this stuff. I'm on a little hillside, and I look out over, over all the cars out there. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, every one of those cars, no one would ever doubt for a moment, were designed by somebody and manufactured also. Isn't that right? They didn't happen by chance, random processes and explosions. No, it doesn't even enter our mind yet. Something more complex than a car, a bucket of bolts, is, the, is a single living cell. And a, is a car alive? No, it's dead matter. But something that's alive, much more intricate, much more complex. There's worlds in a single cell, worlds of mystery. We say, oh, random, accidental, explosions created that. Doesn't make sense. Design demands a designer. We know this. Here's some uh, fancy word. We're going to use some fancy words today. All the professions use fancy words, right? Doctors use fancy words. Lawyers use fancy words. Theologians use fancy words. And of course, scientists do too. I guess it protects them a little bit, but we'll define some of these to help us. Anthropic comes from a Greek word, anthropos, which just means man. And scientists have discovered that the world is carefully designed and really perfectly balanced on a knife edge of certain parameters that allows for life. Just one way or the other in some of these things, and life could not exist. The anthropic principle. In other words, when a young couple has a baby, what do they do? They prepare a special nursery room, don't they? They're pretty giddy about what's to happen. Bring a new life into the world. God made a special nursery room for you and I. It's called planet Earth. And it perfectly suits us. It does. The anthropic principle. And there's many uh, uh, physical constants that, that are just tuned perfectly so that we can live here. Okay. But this sermon isn't about that. Irreducible complexity. This sermon isn't about that. I should have had it in here. What is irreducible complexity? It's really not that complex. Irreducible complexity is the fact that there are organs, for example, in your body. Let's just take the eye. That thing is complicated. It's a system of all sorts of working parts, right? You've got lens, iris, tear ducts, rods, cones, optic nerve, on and on. You've got eyelashes, eyelids, all these things. All, it can focus. It has a lens. It has a retina. If, if you don't have all this stuff, it doesn't work. Are you with me? Irreducible complexity says that there is no way by gradual chance minor changes over the millennia that the eye would ever evolve. For to, to give a being the ability to see and give it the a survivability, you would need to have the whole system present. Are you with me? It doesn't happen by slow, minor, microscopic changes as the evolutionists say. You need the whole thing. So we're, we're in the realm of miracle here, aren't we? Now, one thing I would want to say to those who believe in evolution, I respect you greatly because in the face of all the laws of science, you have greater faith than I do. You believe in something that's impossible.
possible. Absolutely. They believe in magic without a magician. They do. You got to respect them for that. This isn't in the sermon. Theology of beauty. Evolution says, hey, the fit survive, right? And so you would think that evolution would favor that which has the longest claw, the sharpest teeth, the biggest muscles, right? They get, they get the mate, they get the food. But the world manifests an excess of beauty, does it not? There is a lot of beauty out there which evolution cannot explain at all. Okay, why are things so beautiful? I mean, there's, we got ugly stuff too, but we got beauty. How does that how does that help survivability? It doesn't. Where does it come from? And then intelligence. Now, this one you might argue with me about. But we have an excess of intelligence which evolution cannot explain. For example, I could really appreciate you guys singing. I mean, that was wonderful to me. How, how does evolution uh, uh, comprehend or explain the fact that we can appreciate and be in awe of Beautiful music. You can't explain that. Now, I know sometimes we don't seem so intelligent. And I promised I'd invoke my wife in his example here. She's not here, so I can get away with it. (laughs) Yesterday, she's on the internet. Um, How many of you remember my wife? She couldn't be here. She broke her leg. She's already in a power chair. She's going through some tough times. I solicit your prayer. But uh, anyway, she's on the internet. She's talking with somebody. And... uh, they asked her to look up something, and so, you know, she's got to, she, she's, she can't find her glasses, she says. She says, hold on to the person on the internet. I've got to look for my glasses. Her glasses were right here on the end of her nose. I wish I had webcam recorded verification of this event. What a hoot. But the fact is, we have, we do, we have an excess of intelligence. We can invent calculus, right? How, how does evolution explain that? Okay, this not part of the sermon. Let's keep going. Seven reasons right here. We're going to get right into it. Jesus, this is the first test. This one's a biblical test. The other six are really from science itself. This one is Jesus' test. By their fruits, you shall... No, test them by their fruits. What are the fruits of evolution? This is actually uh, the the frontispiece from the origin of species, which kind of started this whole mess, Charles Darwin's book, published in 1859, about the same time the Seventh-day Adventist Church was formed. The subtitle is not ever uh, reprinted in newer editions. You can't read it here. I wish it was clear. I've got it on the next page. Do you know what the subtitle was for the original editions? the origin of species, or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. In other words, evolutionary theory was birthed in racism. Are you with me? Charles Darwin saw Asians as subhuman compared to whites. He saw blacks as subhuman. In fact, the whole idea of race is an evolutionary concept. The Bible says that we are all part of one race. It's called the human race. 
It's interesting to me that they never repeat the subtitle in the modern editions. I have a copy of The Origin of Species in my pack over there. It's not there. They removed it. It's a, it's a horrible embarrassment. Here's a, a modern edition. Took out the subtitle. Here's another one. Nice picture there, huh? Yeah. Hey, by the way, if someone ever ever wants to discuss evolution with you, you go right ahead and do it. You're going you're gonna to get some arrows to put in your quiver. Just smile and say, this is wonderful. I love science fiction. Yeah. Second thing. First was what? Fruits. Fruits. One of them is racism. I should probably go back here. I, there's a lot of fruits, and, and I should. Let me go back. What are some other fruits of evolution? Racism. Racism leads to what? Did you know that on an island off Australia, the British colonists, believing in this theory of evolution, they, they, they armed themselves and walked across the entire island of Tasmania, shooting out the aborigines. Did you know that? Because the aborigines were subhuman. Yeah. Adolf Hitler subscribed to Ernst Haeckel's theories, an evolutionist, a German in the late 1800s. The whole idea of the supremacy of the Aryan race comes out of evolution. Ernst Haeckel came up with this crazy idea. It's now discounted, but, but uh, he, was, he, was, uh, he was influential. He said, and he had drawings too, that in the womb, in the womb, the fetus recapitulates the stages of evolution. In other words, at first it's a protozoa. And then you get a fish with gill slits. And then you get a tail, which drops off, fortunately, before birth. That's what he said. And people, people believed it. And up till not too long ago, in some abortion clinics, the nurse or the counselor will tell the young lady that she's killing nothing but a fish. There's some other things. One more before I leave. According to the evolutionary theory, the fittest gets the mate, right? So, yeah, that's... And in fact, evolutionary theory is dependent on some strong, advanced being, you know, spreading his, his seed as much as possible to the most mates. In other words, evolution is often used as a immoral rationale for sensuality, for sexual promiscuity. I was living out west some years ago, and I would get the Denver Post every morning, one of the country's major newspapers. Above the masthead one day, they had an article about birds. Front page one, above the masthead. And it was about birds. A lot of birds are monogamous right? One mate for life. And people have been intrigued by that. But suddenly, some ornithologists, some bird, you know, watchers had discovered some birds that weren't. And hallelujah, the writer of the article said, it may be that, you know, mankind's proclivity to adultery is, is to be uh, substantiated by the animal kingdom from which he came. Are you with me? Evolution has been used for a, a lot of bad things still to the present day. Okay, that was 
That was number one. Number two, science requires what? Observation. It does. That's just fundamental. They're not going to take anything by faith. They want to see it to believe it. Right? Science requires observation. And it's not to say that they won't believe things that they can't see necessarily, but at least they want to see the effects of such things. Has anyone ever seen evolution occurring? Has anyone ever seen a species become another species? Or has anyone ever seen a single species even develop into some, you know, have some greater complexity added to it? Has anyone ever seen those things? Evolution has never been observed in all recorded history. Evolution is as much faith as to believe in the creator God of Genesis 1. In fact, I say that it takes more faith. It's not observable. It's not repeatable. In fact, it's not even testable. Scientific hypotheses require that you be able to test it, and if it's, if it's tested, if it's right or wrong. No one has yet come up with a test that could possibly demonstrate evolution is wrong. It's not science. It's wishful thinking is what it is. Okay, science does require observation, and they admit this. This is a fairly well-known British evolutionist. He says, the theory of evolution itself is a theory universally accepted, not because it can be proved by logically coherent evidence, that's science, to be true, but because the only alternative special creation is clearly incredible. In other words, I cannot believe in God or I will not believe in God, therefore I will believe in the unbelievable and the preposterous, even though I've got lots of letters after my name. It's basically what he's saying. Oxygen. We're up to number three. Oxygen. How does oxygen refute evolution? I'm going to try to explain this clearly. Uh, Some Seventh-day Adventist biologists have been uh, foremost in writing articles about this. You and I need oxygen to live. Isn't that right? Let's take a breath. (sighs) That's good. But did you know that when you just use that oxygen and let it out, you produced a poisonous gas? Did you know that? And if we were in an enclosed space and we kept breathing in and out, we would poison ourselves to death. Oxygen has a byproduct of carbon dioxide when it's burned by air breathers like you and me. That's a problem. But God has built into this earth carbon dioxide scrubbers. They're called plants. They take our carbon dioxide and they emit oxygen. So the world doesn't get full of carbon dioxide and we all asphyxiate. That's exciting to me how God did that. But here's the problem with evolution. Evolution insists that the first living things were non-air breathers, anaerobic organisms. They don't use air. They're very simple, and that's what the theory says. Anaerobic organisms were first. Here is the problem. Large molecules that are the building blocks of life, they would die in the presence of oxygen. But without oxygen, they cannot live because the ozone layer consists of oxygen and it filters out all harmful rays. So to have evolution, you can't have oxygen. To to have evolution, you must have oxygen. Are you with me? This is a conundrum. They cannot explain it. They don't know what to do. Oxygen. Next time someone says, hey, Why do you believe in creation? Just say oxygen. It's a big problem for you, man. Okay. Yeah. 
creates poisonous byproducts. It causes breakdown of organic materials. Without ozone, plants could not survive. Ozone, again, is O3, oxygen. And some say, well, where did the oxygen come from? That's a problem because plants produce it. But if, if you didn't have plants, all you had is little, you know, anaerobic organisms. Where'd they come from? Actually, oxygen has even been found on Venus. So even if you don't have plants, you have oxygen. So you couldn't have plants. It's, it's a remarkable difficulty that they cannot get around. The book of nature tells us that if oxygen had always been in the atmosphere of our Earth, life could not have come about by a slow step-by-step self-organization of matter. Couldn't have happened. All right, this is Stanley Miller. He's famous because he put some uh, chemicals in a test tube, mixed them all together. I think he shot some electrical charges through it. You've probably heard this. My wife, as a substitute teacher, just recently had to show this film. And the kids came away saying, wow, life was produced in a test tube. That's not correct. Stanley Miller, all he produced, I was taught this story, was amino acids. Amino acids are not life. And, And the problem was... He excluded oxygen from his chamber. What percentage of the air we breathe is oxygen that surrounds this earth? What percentage? It's 21%. That is a lot of oxygen. But he excluded it. And then he really wasn't up and, and, and uh, forthcoming about the fact that he, he really, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He manipulated the experiment to get what he wanted. Um, even Wikipedia admits this. He was an American chemist, biologist. He, he got into the studies for the origin of life, an experiment that was even named after him. Notice the last line. However, it has since been demonstrated that the conditions used for the experiment may not have been an accurate representation of the early Earth atmosphere, after all. And so the kids are being taught something that's just, it's hocus pocus. Missing links. We're up to L. So far we've got fruits. Observation, oxygen, and now links, missing links. This is the truth about missing links. They're still missing. In fact, there are fewer links today than when Darwin lived. He fully expected, as as archaeology developed as a science, it was kind of in its infancy in his day, he figured that around the world, as people kept uncovering stuff and digging, they would find all sorts of intermediate transitional forms between the different, you know, organisms, between man and ape, for example. And some things were discovered, sort of. I'd like to share with you a few of them. Uh, This is what this evolutionist says. Ironically, we have even fewer examples of evolutionary transition than we had in Darwin's time. It should be than we had. This is the uh, National Geographic, obviously, July 1998 issue. It shows a feathered dinosaur. Back at that time, that was the big hunt. We've got to find some eater, intermediary between reptiles, dinosaurs, and birds. Bird flight is a real mystery. How did, how did we go from, from you know, reptiles to birds? We've got to find some intermediaries. And suddenly, they found a few. Oh, yeah, in China. Paid a lot of money for them, by the way. <laughs> they had a little... They had a little uh, Business going there in China, apparently, of uh, fossil manufacturing. And National Geographic, this, this very highly regarded journal, put it right on the cover, July 1998, only to have egg all over their face. 
They had to apologize later when they found out it was a hoax. This is what the a Smithsonian Institution curator said. National Geographic has reached an all-time low for engaging in sensationalistic, unsubstantiated tabloid journalism. Even some of their own employees at the Geographic said, hey, you cannot print this. This is, this is really iffy stuff. They put it right on the cover for all to see and read and hear. They even had a display in the National Geographic headquarters in the lobby of their building in Washington, D.C. But it was a hoax, and there's been a lot of these hoaxes. This is a famous picture, famous British scientists around 1912. They're looking at a skull. He was named Piltdown Man, said to be an ape man. Forty years later, scientists apologized and said, Oops! Oops! Piltdown Man... He was, he was part orangutan, mostly human skull, put together and painted with some orange paint. And all these great men are in awe of Piltdown Man as they're looking at their ancestors. Nebraska Man, here's one that's interesting. Nebraska Man, he once sat in the Denver Museum of Natural History, and they did a diorama of him. He's, he's got tools, he's a, he, there's a bronze of him. His wife is there, and he's working away on something. And uh, he was discovered in Nebraska on a mound. You could see him here. Notice how the biological artist really went to town. He's hairy, he's got a, a big lower jaw, wide nose. He, he looks like an intermediate to me if I was, you know, going to concoct such a thing. You know where he came from? The only thing that was found was one lone single tooth. We have Nebraska man. Later it was discovered that this tooth belonged to a pig. <laughs> All right. Spontaneous generation. We're down to number five. We could go on and on with this. Uh, spontaneous generation. In the Middle Ages, people believed in spontaneous generation. What is spontaneous generation? It's that life arose from non-living things, also called abiogenesis. Where do children come from? Parents, right? Where do, where, do, where do monkeys come from? From monkeys. Where do flowers come from? Flowers, yeah. Living things come from living things. We've never seen anything other than that. Yet to be a true-blooded, dyed-in-the-wool evolutionist, you have to believe at some point in time... Life came from non-life. And in the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, now they believe that. Why? Well, if they just had a pile of rags in a dusty corner that they left alone, suddenly they might see some rats scurrying around. Ah, rats from rags! Or, here's a dead carcass. This is, this is a dead carcass. And look it, maggots are coming out of it. Oh, life from non-life. They believed it. Spontaneous generation made sense to them. And then along came a, a French scientist, a staunch creationist, by the way, named Louis Pasteur. Have you heard of Louis Pasteur? He did some experimentation, and he concluded and proved beyond a shadow of doubt that rats don't come from rags in the corner and that maggots don't come from the dead body, but flies landed on that body and laid some eggs. Are you with me? No one believes in spontaneous... In fact, Scientists laugh at the idea of spontaneous generation, but they have to believe in it, an absurdity to believe in evolution. And they admit this 
I've got a quote, I think, coming up, I hope. Well, maybe not. I left it out. Okay, mutations. We're moving along. I'm at number six. You hear about mutations all the time. Mutation is just a change, change in your DNA. And uh, they say that mutation is the mechanism by which things change. Guess what? They have yet to find a single mutation. There's never been a single one observed that's positive. All the mutations we know about don't evolve anything into a higher being, but they degrade it into something worse. Not a single one has yet been discovered. A beneficial mutation has not yet been documented in real life. Even if one did occur, it would not mean much. Why? Because in order for for offspring to acquire uh, some characteristic, usually both parents have to have that characteristic in common. It's not a characteristic that's passed on if it's something new that's not, that both partners don't have. So we'd have to have simultaneous evolution of some strange new thing. But yet, again, they've never found one that's beneficial. They're all harmful. And the word is often misused. You hear about mutation all the time in, uh, for example, viruses. You know, they mutated, so they're resistant. Or, or uh, some bacteria, it mutated, so it's resistant to antibiotic. No mutation happened at all. What happened was the antibiotic killed all those bacteria that it could kill, and there was a few, a certain percentage of that bacterial population that survived, and they reproduced. No new information was created or passed on. How many have heard of the peppered moths of England? I was taught about the peppered moths. They changed color, they said. Guess what? Since that time, because England has passed some pollution control laws, The trees are not so dark, covered with factory dust and soot like they once were. And so now the peppered moth has gone gone back to being light-colored. No new information happened. We still have peppered moths. There's a variety in color. That's all there is. And they use the word mutation. It's really, there's no such thing as a beneficial mutation as far as we know. This This is a famous French guy, Pierre Grasset. He's written books on evolution. And this is what he says about mutation. There is no law against daydreaming, but science must not indulge in it. That's what he says. He says, mutation does not work. It's not a mechanism for evolution. Okay, one last one. Entropy. Kind of a fancy word. Our seventh one. What is entropy? Entropy, all it is, is disorder. It's the second law of science, the second law of thermodynamics. It's fundamental. It's called the supreme law of nature. But it's the exact opposite of evolution. Entropy says that things proceed from a state of order to disorder. Fundamental law of science. If I leave my home alone for 50 years and just let it sit, what happens to it? What happens to it when I come back? It it needs some work, doesn't it? And if I maybe, if I could wait 500 years, I might come back and it'd just be a pile of rubble. Isn't that right? Inanimate things decay. Even animate things decay. That's why my, my brother was complaining that he, you know, he needs glasses and he can't see and he has to hold things far. We are in decay. We are. We're, uh, we're, we're getting old and uh, we decay. Living things do that. That's the law of entropy and we see it everywhere. It's a law of disorder, a fundamental law of the universe. Now check this out. Evolution is the exact opposite, isn't it? Things don't decay, they're evolving, they're getting better. 
In other words, to believe in evolution, you have to violate your own fundamental cardinal tenet of the faith, the second law of thermodynamics. How can that be? One uh, PhD uh, in chemistry said this, bottom, the second law of thermodynamics makes evolution impossible. I like the second law very much because if everything is proceeding from a state of order to disorder, then at one time things were a lot more orderly. Isn't that right? Isn't that what the Bible says? Things were a lot better at one time, but we've been on a downhill slide ever since. Praise God, he's going to revoke the law of entropy and make all things new. Amen? The law of entropy also tells us that we are heading for a date with destiny. Things are winding down, spiraling out of control. But God is going to breathe new life into that mathematical equation of entropy. The image of Daniel 2, picture it with me in your mind for a second. It's the history of man, isn't it? And it really visually demonstrates the law of disorder. Starts out with a head of gold, gold, precious gold. But every element gets, is reduced in value. Gold becomes silver, becomes brass, becomes iron, becomes iron mixed with dirt. Yeah, that's entropy. But what happens to that image? Yeah, a rock cut out without hands comes back and makes a kingdom that will last, not subject to the law of entropy. Amen? One last text, Revelation 14, and I'm going to sit down. Revelation chapter 14, seven reasons here. I, I hope you keep them in your, in your uh, quiver. You can use some of them, I hope. Maybe not all of them, but a few of them anyway. Revelation 14, I'm in verse 8. Another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen. Babylon means confusion, right? Chaos. Chaos, and that's what we have in this world today. And it's fundamental understanding of where we came from. It's just, it's Babylon. It's confusion. Why is Babylon fallen? Why does the second angel's message announce that Babylon is fallen? It's, yeah, they rejected the first angel's message. What is it? Verse 6 and 7, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. What does this everlasting gospel consist of? My brother says with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and springs of water. Babylon is fallen because it rejects the message about the great God of creation. We don't want to be part of Babylon's fall. Amen? Don't want to be part of it. I want to accept the truth of it based on Scripture, based on science. And if there are those here with me today that would like to stay, I say, and, and let me say this before I ask this, you know that there are there are Seventh-day Adventists today that have compromised on this issue. It's happening in our ranks. And that, that is a crisis, and we have to meet it. But if you would like to say yourself today, I'm going to stand before God 
and say, Lord, I believe in Genesis. I believe that you are my creator and you are my redeemer as well. If you'd like to say that to God today, I invite you to stand right up. We need to, on this point, I hope you stand. I hope you hold the line. There are, there are some so-called evidences, yes, for, for evolution, but they seem to be, at least to, to me, silly when they're examined in the light of Scripture, in the light of science. Father in heaven, I am grateful today that I and those that are within my hearing don't have to believe for a moment that... Uh, Mollusks were our ancestors, uh, that we came from some protoplasmic jelly, uh, but we have a great heritage, sons and daughters of the king of the universe. We are made in your likeness and image. Lord, I'm grateful for the noble heritage we possess. Lord, you, you said that you made man upright, but we've sought out many inventions, and we have done just that, Lord. We've sought out some strange inventions, but you made us upright. I pray that we would live up to our noble heritage, and I pray that we would hold fast the line on this particular point. It's, it's a crucial point. We want to be believers and not doubters, Lord. In Jesus' holy name I pray, amen.